You are listening to audio from Haddington Elam Church. We hope you are encouraged by this today. For more information about our weekly services or messy church, you can find us at haddingtonelamchurch.com. So I started looking at the prophet Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet. And there's a little tear coming down the guy's cheek. It's not the easiest to see. But he was known as the weeping prophet because his heart was broken for his people and his nation. And I said last week, like, I think we're at a point where we need to start to have our hearts broken for our people and our nation. Repentance is a key. Sometimes we want revival or we want refreshing, but repentance is the key that unlocks that door. So his heart was broken for his people and nation. He was reluctant at first to become God's voice to the people. It was a calling of God. He was reluctant. He resisted the call and said that he was only a youth and didn't know how to speak. But the Lord touched his mouth and God would put his own words in Jeremiah's mouth. And he says, I'm making you a prophet to the nations. His age wouldn't have anything to do with God's call or God's will for his life. And young people, I would say to you today, God's call comes often when we're children or teens. We know Moses was... Older, we know some were older. Samuel was just a boy. The prophet Samuel was just a boy when the word of the Lord came to him. I know for myself, I was about 16 years of age when I really felt that God was calling me. So sometimes we need to be obedient to that calling. God said of Jeremiah, even before he was formed in the womb, God knew him and set him apart as a prophet. There's much that we can learn from Jeremiah We need to understand the history and context to grasp the gravity of God, why God was bringing Babylon against them. Sometimes we don't know. We just read it, turn the page, turn the page. We need to understand the history and the context. I think somehow we've gotten away from kind of the context of what things were written in. This is why Babylon was coming against them. Nations even today have turned away from God and people haven't changed much from Jeremiah's time. And sometimes people don't like the Old Testament. They don't want to even read it. They're like, oh, that's ancient history. But hearts are still filled with sin. They haven't changed much. I mentioned last week about using caution and discernment, especially when people claim to be a prophet. We live in a day and age where people uh, have media. They say they're prophet so-and-so. And I would say we really need to use caution, strong caution against that. Just because somebody claims to be a prophet of God does not make it so. Here's a warning from Deuteronomy. And Moses is talking to the people. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 19. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he, the actual prophet of God, shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I'm just going to pause for a minute. If you claim to be a prophet of God, you got before the people and said, thus says the Lord, and you were just speaking of something you made up or a dream that you had, and it did not come to pass, they took you outside the city and stoned you. You were to die. So this idea of people just giving prophetic words, it's really, really scary and dangerous. Use caution. And so verse 21, he says, Well, you may say in your heart, how will we know the, which the, the Lord uh, has not spoken, the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, 
If the thing that does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. Friends, we uh, need to use discernment in the New Testament. So you could say that's Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are many warnings about using and praying for discernment as there were many wolves who would come into the flock and try to do harm. They would come to the assemblies. They would come to the churches. Many times we're told to be alert, to be on guard, aware, and not ignorant of the devices and schemes of the enemy. Many false prophets have come and will continue to come. False prophets. We must be careful and pray for discernment. And that's one thing the church needs today so strongly is discernment, to know this deception. The end times in Revelation talks about a great deception coming. And there's a difference between prophecy, and I said this last week, and then the office of prophet. We need to use discernment. Jeremiah was called to warn the people to repent and proclaim Jerusalem's coming destruction by invaders from the north because Israel had forsaken God by worshiping Baal, idols, and other gods. And they even sunk so low as to burn their children in the fire. And I said this before, have you ever thought about that just for a moment? Those of you with children, could you imagine sacrificing your child to some detestable God, literally throwing them or burning them in the fire? And that's how low that they had sunk. The nation had deviated so far from God that they had broken their covenant, causing God to withdraw his blessing and protection So Jeremiah was raised up. Jeremiah was called to warn them that the nation of Judah would suffer famine, conquest by a foreign nation, and will be taken into captivity in a strange land if they didn't repent. A language you don't know, a people you don't know, customs you don't know. They were used to having the temple where they could worship the true God. They're going to be taken away as captives. To better understand the extensive mercy of God, We need to look at this history and covenant that the people had made before God and he to them. God had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt by sending them a deliverer, Moses. Many of you know the story of Moses and how God raised him up and delivered them out of Egypt. And he drove out all the inhabitants of the land before them and fought on their behalf. So God took them out of Egypt And he was taking them to the land of milk and honey. And he began to drive out the nations and fought on their behalf. Joshua, the mighty warrior, had led the people into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert. And he would speak to the nation as they made a covenant before God. So here's some of the history. Here's some of the background. And I I was thinking about paraphrasing it because it's a bunch of scripture. But I thought it's his word. I want to say his word. I don't want to to shorten it or, or to paraphrase. So in Joshua... 24, beginning in verse 13. It will be on the screen. And God says, I gave you a land that you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them. And you're eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord See, the the forefathers served other gods in the past. Egypt was known for having a plethora of gods. It was time now to put those away, 
all those false gods and worship the true God and serve him. Even all that they had seen or participated while in Egypt needed to be put away once and for all. There was no place for it going forward. And they would have been there for more than 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt. They would have been multi-generational learning the customs of worshiping those pagan gods in Egypt. And this is something different that God was calling them to do. In verse 15, and he says, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That should be all of our cry of all of our hearts. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The time for wavering is over. This is it. Joshua is calling them to account. They're getting ready to cross in. This is the moment to decide whom that they are choosing. They've straddled the fence long enough and must choose. And friends, we must make a choice too. We can be straddling the fence for too long. There comes a time where if God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. Friends, we need to know, are we in wholeheartedly for life with our Savior? Leonard Ravenhill says this, if he is not the Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. We don't co-lead with him. He's in charge of our lives. And so the people answered verse 16 and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will also serve the Lord for he is our God. So the people say, we're going to serve him. He's not just your God, Joshua. He's not just someone that you follow. We're going to serve him. He is our God as well. So the whole congregation agrees to follow after him, the God who delivered them. And Joshua then charges him and he says to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So God gives them the terms in a covenant. It's like a legal binding contract. Both parties give their bit. God says, I'll promise to do this and this if you uphold your end of this. And the people said, well, we'll do our part. Our part is this. The terms of breaking the oath, the covenant is told. If you forsake him and serve other gods, he will remove his armor of protection and you will be harmed. Joshua reminds them that they are witnesses to this event. So they're there. They're acknowledging it. All of them. It was that moment. If anyone did want to walk away, it was their chance Friends, today we can forsake God and we could step out from under the shadow of his wings of protection. You know, there's that expression about being backslidden. Maybe some of us have been in a state of, of backsliding. Maybe some of our family or friends are backslidden who once walked with God. 
And they've taken and moved out from the shadow of his wing, of his protection. But listen to this amazing promise of God. Even if we become faithless, he won't. Because he will not be false to himself. I find that absolutely fascinating promise of God. Even if we become faithless, he will still keep his word. Because he won't go against his promise that he made. He will keep his word to us. Finishing up in Joshua, and he says, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst, and incline your hearts. There's the key. Incline your hearts. It's not a matter of just removing it. It's your heart. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. I've talked before about memorial stones, with times that maybe God's moved in our life or, or something that we, we do to remember a time where God's moved. Joshua sets up this stone. Remember, he took some stones out of when, when the uh, river split and he took some stones out, 12 stones, one for each tribe. And when they would see the pile of stones and they would say, what do these mean? And he would say, God parted the river. And that's what this means. So he sets up this stone as a reminder Maybe like we would have in a lot of our city's monuments. So we don't remember what happened at Waterloo, but there's a, a monument there and there's a plaque. So he sets up this stone to remind them in the future generations that they made this pledge before God. Once again, he's saying the call is to put away the foreign gods and focus your hearts firmly on the Lord. The nation pledges to listen and obey. The people made a promise a covenant that they would serve God and put away these gods and idols that they were worshiping. Some of them even took them with them, these little trinkets and things. The nations that were there in the land had served those other gods. God was displacing them. He, they were leaving. And as the Israelites were coming in, he's saying, no place for those gods here among you. Israel had the true and living God as their God. He wasn't made of wood. He wasn't made of stone. He was the real living God who worked and moved on their behalf. See, as they were getting ready to go in, if you remember, there was a generation that had to die out in the wilderness for 40 years in the wandering. The previous generation met God on Mount Sinai. Moses went up and they saw the mountain on fire and they were terrified. They saw God in their midst. They saw the Red Sea part. And they pledged that they would do all that the Lord had spoken, only to worship the golden calf after 40 days away from Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain, 40 days in, they're making and worshiping a golden calf. And they're bowing down to it and saying, here's your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. 40 days. Should be a warning to our hearts. They saw... Joshua's generation saw that entire generation disobey and die after 40 years in the wilderness. My friend had said one time, how would you have liked to have been that last person? You know, God said, none of this generation will enter the promised land. How would you like to have been that last person alive? And everyone's just waiting for you to, to die off so they can enter the promised land. 40 years, they saw that generation die because of their disobedience. 
But this generation with Joshua saw the miracles in the wilderness. They saw God drive out the people that were there. They too saw the mountain on fire with the presence of God. But still they turned away and worshipped other gods made of wood and stone. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And if we're not careful, we can do those things too. We can do those same things. We can be out of church, we can miss a week, we can be on holiday, and then it ends up being four weeks, five weeks, and we're in worse shape than we were if we would have never believed. Forty days, and they're worshiping golden calves. The people had forsaken God and began to worship every detestable thing that they could imagine, even sacrificing their children through the fire to this god Moloch. They had the true and living God as their God. So God sent Jeremiah and others to warn them that judgment was coming. Friends, if you look at the book of Revelation, the majority of the book is about the judgments of God, the wrath of God being poured out. He's warning them, and as we learned last week, 40 years, 40 years he prophesied to the nation that judgment was coming. They would be taken captive, and many would die if they didn't repent. See, God is ever merciful. His mercy is great, but there comes that time. There comes that time when God just will not tolerate it. They refuse to listen or heed the words of the Lord. So here's Jeremiah 38. Those of you, again, that are following along, we're going to just be looking at a couple of these verses. I'll be looking at part three next week, and I'll be covering more of this. In verse 1, Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord. Again, many people say it in the name of the Lord, but here's the words of God. Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. And he who does go, go out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Siege had come against the city and they were going to be taken captive to Babylon. Thus says the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. And the official said to the king, now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. The true prophet of God is speaking the truth and they don't want to hear what he has to say. Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem would be handed over to the Babylonian army. And the king's officials convinced King Zedekiah that Jeremiah should be put to death for discouraging the soldiers and the people. What a contrast. What's the true word of the Lord? We need to know the truth and the truth of God's word. Jeremiah tells them the truth. It's already done. As far as God's concerned, this city is going to be burned. It's going to be turned over and you're going to be taken captives. Your only recourse is to surrender. That's it. If you want to live, you need to surrender. Well, all the soothsayers, all the other false prophets, it's not going to happen. We got enough men, we got enough soldiers, we've made some alliances with Egypt, we have other things in place. He was speaking the truth and they rejected God's message, which in essence was rejecting God. And God was telling them that their lives would be spared if they would just listen to his voice and instructions. He truly had their best interest at heart. God gets no joy out of the death of the wicked. As much as Jeremiah would weep, and if you just turn from Jeremiah in the next chapter, Lamentations, as much as he would weep, 
God did not want his beloved nation to be judged. He did not want this to happen. His mercy was great, sending them prophet after prophet. He desired that they would repent instead. And undoubtedly, he would have shown mercy. He says in his word that mercy triumphs over judgment. God would have relented the judgment coming if they would have just repented. Verse 5, so King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Zedekiah was the king. He was in charge and absolutely could have done something. He made it like he was powerless to stop this. Instead, he allowed them to take Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern where he sank down in the mud. And I just want to give you, because it's one of those things, again, we can gloss over, but a little quick history of Zedekiah. Zedekiah's original name was Mataniah. He was the son of Josiah and an uncle of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was the true and legitimate king. Years before, Nebuchadnezzar came against Israel, and he surrendered, and he was taken captive to Babylon. And so what they did, Nebuchadnezzar put in Zedekiah. He put in this guy, and they changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was appointed to the throne as a subordinate under an oath of allegiance to Babylon, a sort of proxy to Nebuchadnezzar. See, they put in somebody weak. They put in somebody who wouldn't make any waves, who could just kind of be the regent there, who could just kind of oversee the area. But he did something sneaky. He tried to make alliances with Egypt and other nations to, to overthrow this rule of Babylon. In the ninth year of his rule, a Babylonian army laid siege to Jerusalem. He was urged to submit to the Babylonians, which was the will of God. But he was a weak king and he listened to the officials around him. Sometimes be careful who you surround yourself with. I know in, in business, people don't want, some do, but you don't want the yes man. You don't want somebody that just agrees to everything that you agree with. You want somebody that maybe sees things differently. Watch who you surround yourself with. Their intent was to kill Jeremiah by starvation. They tried to say that he was uh, going to desert them and go over to the enemy, and they wanted to imprison him. Throwing him in the cistern, allowing him to die by starvation, allowed them to claim that they were innocent of his blood. He more than likely would have died of thirst, but no matter to them, they wanted him dead for speaking the truth that went against every single one of their prophets and seers. Zedekiah was a weak king, chosen by others because he was weak and would give no resistance. He treated God's man, his prophet, called and appointed by God, Jeremiah, who was acting out of love, compassion, and mercy to his people. He was treated with great contempt by the people. He didn't want to kill him outright, but he was okay with them putting him in an old cistern. And then he took Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern, into Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. Friends, today... That may be where you're at, where you feel that you're sunk down in the mud. Have you ever felt like you were in the mud? Cast down, forgotten? He's God's man doing what God told him to do, speaking the truth, and here he is sinking down in the mud. Now, I don't know how deep it would have been, 
but it certainly wouldn't have been pleasant. If it was knee-deep, waist-deep, sinking down into the mud or the mire. Have you ever felt that you were left alone or betrayed? Does it seem like life right now is like trotting through mud? It seems like it's a difficult thing that we're going through. Have you felt as if God has allowed the enemy to get the better of you? You're not alone in these feelings. See, that's why sometimes we can read and see what some of the people of God have gone through in the past. You're not alone. Nor has this escaped the notice of God. Sometimes we, the enemy would want us to believe that God's forgotten us. That we're in the muck and mire and, and sinking down in and he's like, that's what you get for following after God. But that's not missing the notice of God. King David, the man after God's own heart, ran for his life several times. They wanted to kill him and he would have to run for his life. He slept in caves and wasn't sure if he'd live to see another day. He knew something about sinking into the mud and the muck and the mire, about feeling alone or abandoned. He even had his own men talk of killing him. They had their women and children were taken away and his men wanted to just kill him. And it says that he cried till he had no tears left to cry. Friends, I don't know if you've been there where you have no tears left to cry. You're just at the end of yourself. He would say this in Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me up out of the horrible pit of tumult and of destruction and out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, steadying my footsteps and establishing my path. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. David knew something about what he was talking about. Friends, he's taken us out of the muck and the mire. There's an old hymn that talks about taking me out of the miry clay. We're set upon the rock, Jesus Christ. See, he sunk into the depths of humanity for us. He bore our muck and mire, our filth. He was rejected and abandoned. He brought us out of the terrible pit of despair that we never could. See, our good works couldn't do it. Being kind couldn't do it. He did it. He establishes us for his glory. Although his people broke the covenant, he keeps his. They abandoned their God. He never abandoned them. He is a promise-keeping and covenant-keeping God. He shows mercy to a thousand generations. The mercy of God is great. It says of him that he is ever patient and long-suffering. Israel had been given years to repent. In Jeremiah's life, 40 years, many years given to repent and turn their lives around and come back to worshiping God. He sent prophet after prophet urging them to repent but there came a time when the sin could no longer be just and God's judgment came. Friends, I just feel like we're getting close to that point in history where nations continue and people continue to sin against God in such a, such a degree. This is a huge warning for us as well. See, it wasn't just, oh well, too bad for them. Too bad for them all those years ago. Our hearts need to be inclined to the, toward the Lord. He has poured out his grace and mercies on us every morning. There's new mercy. 
This alone should cause us to love him more and draw him close. As we sang this morning, he is altogether lovely. Sometimes I think we can get this picture of God that he's an angry God. Many people do if they believe in God. They think that he is an angry God that is waiting for them to mess up or to step out of line and that he could smash them. And that's not true. He's altogether lovely. It was his mercy that held his hand. See, God's plan for Israel, his calling of Abraham, was to be a peculiar people. He was to be shown to the world through his people. Israel was to show the world God. They were to be his representative. But the problem was, God wanted them to be unique. He called them to be unique. They wanted to be just like everybody else. God was their king. And they said, we want a king. We want to be just like all the other nations around us. Give us a king. It broke God's heart, but God gave them a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. He wanted to set them apart, and they wanted to fit in. Friends, God is setting us apart. He wants us set apart for him, and he sets us apart by him. But it can be the same with us. We don't want to tell anybody about him. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different. We want to just fit in. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God is calling us. He set us apart. Even in Jeremiah's case, before he was formed in the womb, God called him and set him apart. What is God calling you to do? What is he setting you apart to do? Friends, we're chosen. We're chosen by him. We're selected. We're picked. We're not just there wondering, are we going to be on the team? We're selected. He's chosen us a royal priesthood. Not just a priesthood, a royal priesthood. A people set apart by God and to God. He has provided us with mercy every morning. We woke up today, new mercy. For as much as we could have blown it yesterday. He has lifted us out of the pit of despair. Out of the mire and muck of the world. As David said, he took us out of the pit and he put our feet on solid ground, placed us on the rock of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Please tune in next week for another inspirational message. If you're in the East Lothian area, visit us online at haddingtonelamchurch.com for information about how you can join us for our weekly Sunday services.